0: Today, as, as we get started, um, I, I wanna I, I wanna give you guys a quote, and, and uh, let's see if you guys know what it's from. Let's see if you paid attention in high school. Uh, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Anyone know what that's from? Shakespeare, Romeo, Juliet. All right, well done. Someone Googled it. All right, but anyway, no, that's that's absolutely right. And sir, so I'm gonna I'm gonna need you to calm down. All right, it's a long day. It's going no, I'm just kidding. Actually, you know, and, and so the the point of that, Juliet is saying that to Romeo, and she's saying, I don't care what your name is, all right? Like, I love you. And, and so anyway, I guess to answer her question, what is in a name, um... Not so much anymore, right? Like, not so much in, in, in our culture anyway. Basically, names now in our culture, it's just a label to distinguish one person from another, right? Like, that's basically it. My parents didn't know that they were having twins. I'm a twin, and they had no idea they were having twins. And, uh, and so when I was born, I was baby A, and Drew was baby B. And, and like, that if for the rest of my life, I was called A. That's okay, right? Like, it's to distinguish between one person or another. Do you even know what your name means? Do you know what your name means? Some people do, and some people don't. My name, Grant, means great, which is well done, parents. You really you nailed it, right? But it means great. And, and I named my son Maxim, and I didn't know what his name meant until we'd already decided to name him Maxim. Maxim means greater. And so inadvertently, I have I have named my son either my successor or my nemesis. I don't know which one yet. But, but anyway, like most people, we don't know what our names mean. And, and so like in our culture though, we do, like we have nicknames. It's probably the closest thing we have to someone being called something that represents who they are as a person. I'm going to show you some, some sports giants and, and, and we'll see if you guys remember their, their nicknames. Now this is Wilt Chamberlain. Does anyone know his nickname? Wilt the Stilt. Do you see obviously why they called him Wilt the Stilt? That guy's ridiculous. He's bigger than Wayne Drake. All right, so Wilt the Stilt. All right, well, let's see. This is uh, Pete Maravich. Pistol Pete. Anyone know why he's called Pistol Pete? Shoot from the hip, right? He passed from the hip, all right? All right, so we got Pistol Pete Maravich. What about this guy? This is Michael what Jordan? Air Jordan. And you see why his famous dunk from the foul line, which uh, I taught him everything he knows. We also, very lastly, we have... All right, babe might be one of this, this is George Herman Ruth, the Great Mambino, the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout. Or as we know him, Babe Ruth, right? Now, now nicknames are the closest thing we have in our culture of describing someone, right? But they're still, the nicknames today still don't, don't come close to the significance of names in the Old Testament. Like when someone was named something in the Old Testament, it wasn't simply, oh, I like that name, or that's what I ate last, right? They named them after something that meant something. Their name meant something about who they were. It described you as a person. In in 1 Samuel 25, um, listen to what Nabal's wife says about him. Uh, He says, Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Now, number one, if that's your wife you've got a rough marriage, all right? If she's saying those things about you. But number two, she's saying that his name signifies who he is. It is his very essence. It's a big deal what his name is. And and we see in the Old Testament uh, in Genesis 35, God renames Jacob to Israel. Jacob means cheat and Israel means prince with God. And so it's a big deal. It's uh, a name in the Bible is not simply a label distinguishing you from someone else. It's described Describing who you are—it's your very essence. And so, throughout the scriptures, when God is referred to as many different names, it's not simply like—it's not trivial. All right, it's not just oh, I think this is a cool name that I'm going to call God, right? Like the big guy upstairs. It's nothing like that. When we see a name of God in the scriptures, it's literally we should be excited, and because it's literally God revealing Himself to us in a new way. Each name of God in the scriptures is a revelation of God, of who he is. It's not just something else to call him. It's not just a nickname. It's literally part of who he is. And so today, I wanna look at one name of God. And this name of God I wanna look at, it only appears in the scriptures one time. It only appears one time. However, this one time that it appears in scriptures, it appears throughout scripture and who he is. This revelation of who God is in this one name is revealed of, of, of who God is throughout His throughout all of scripture and throughout who Jesus is. And so we're going to look at this one name. And this, this one name is El-Rohi. El-Rohi. Now, I know it looks like El-Roy, right? But it's not, all right? So... Jetsons. Here we go. El, El-Rohi, and it occurs first in Genesis 16, and it's used by an Egyptian servant, Hagar. Now, um, we need some context. Before we get to Genesis 16, we need some context. Because if we don't, this isn't going to make much sense to us whatsoever. If you want to go ahead and turn to Genesis 16, it's on page 10, uh, if you have one of the little uh, paperback Bibles, right? All right, let me give you some context. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. And he says to Abram, who He'll he'll later rename Abram, Remember the significance of names? So he calls Abram and he says to him, I want you to leave everything behind and I want you to go find a, a piece of land and I'm going to show you this land and I'm going to give you this land and I'm also going to make a great nation out of you. Now at this point, Abram uh, and, and his wife, uh, they, they have no children. Okay, and so he's saying to him, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And so obviously this is a promise that I'm going to give you descendants, right? If I'm going to make a great nation out of you, you need to have a son, right? And so he makes him this promise. And then again in chapter 13, God says it again. I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you this land. But then in chapter 15, something happens. Uh, Abram has a conversation with God because they don't have a son yet. They don't, have, they don't have a son yet to carry his name on to make this great nation. And so beginning in verse, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've been, you've been, excuse me, Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and and he counted to him as righteousness. So we're going to look beginning in verse 16. So God has promised him again, I'm going to give you an heir. Look at the stars. Can you count them? That's how many descendants you'll have. All right. I'm going to make you a great nation. Chill out. All right. Like he keeps reminding him of this. But look in verse 16 and we're going to see a, sort of a problem arise here. Um, now, Sarai, which is, which is uh, Abram's uh, wife, who will be renamed Sarah later. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So what's happening here? His wife says, look, I still don't have any kids. I'm still barren, all right? God has made me this way. It's just how it is. So if we want to fulfill God's promise, then we need to help him here. Right? It's sound reasoning, huh? So she says, hey, I've got this servant here. And if you have kids with her, then they'll be my kids. I will take them as my own. And this is how we will help God along. We'll help him fulfill his promise. So look in verse 3. uh, uh, Abram says, okay, deal. That sounds good to me. So she gives Abram Hagar as another wife. So he takes her servant and makes makes her his new wife. And so no longer is she really a servant now in, in her eyes. And so she becomes pregnant. And so what happens is Hagar starts to kind of look at contempt on Sarai. Now, the, who knows why? Maybe she looked at, at contempt on her because, hey, I got pregnant. Or hey, now I'm carrying the heir, right? Like now I have a right that you don't have. Like I'm more honorable because I'm pregnant. I'm carrying the heir and you're not. So now there's some tension, right? There's some tension between her. And and what does Sarai do? She blames Abram. She says, this is on you, dude. Like I gave you her and she got pregnant, right? This is on you. Why did she get pregnant, right? So maybe she's even blaming that he's putting more affection on her than he did on on Sarai. And so anyway, there's some problems going on here. And so how does Abram handle it? Like every um, good delegate, he says, but Abraham said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So what does he say? Uh, Hey, baby, that's, not, that's rough. That's difficult. You deal with it however you want to deal with it. I'm behind you, all right? You do what you got to do, and you handle it, right? And so what happens? Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And so she begins to abuse her. He says, look, this is your servant. You handle it, right? What a great guy. So he says that to her, and so she handles it harshly. And she starts to abuse her, right? And so what does she do? What what does Hagar do? She runs away. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring of the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So Sarai is running. She's in the wilderness. She's trying to get away. And an angel of the Lord appears to her and says, where are you going? And she says I'm getting away from my mistress, okay? Like she's mistreating me. I've got to get away. And the angel of the Lord says, "Go back. Go back and submit to her." So let's keep keep looking here in verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. Keep reading verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Or in the Hebrew, El-Rohi. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir-Lahai-Rohi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Could you imagine, 86 years old, and you just had a baby. All right. Uh, Anyway, So let's break something down here in verse 16, okay? Or in chapter 16. Let's look at a couple of things. In verse 13, she calls him El-Rohi, which is the God who sees, or the God who sees me. And where does she get this? Where does she get this idea that God has has seen me? God knows what's going on. Look at verse 11. It says, the Lord has listened to your affliction. So God reveals himself as the God who sees you and he's he's with you in your afflictions. If you feel alone, if you feel like God doesn't see you, he does. He's the God who sees you in your affliction. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. But he's not just that. He's not just the God who sees. And and, and let me explain what I mean by that. Look at verse 9. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. At this point, Hagar, she's got to just be defeated. She's got to be just deflated. You want me to return? She She was mistreating me. Do you understand what I just told you? She's mistreating me. I've got to get away, all right? This is too much for me to bear. But God says, I see you, return. And then what does he say in verse 10? I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So what does he say? He says, return, I see you. But listen, I have a plan. All right, I want you to return, but I have a plan. I'm going to get you through this. I'm gonna I'm gonna make your son. I'm gonna make a nation out of him. I'm gonna grow a multitude out of him. And so what God shows here is not only is he the God who sees us, and he sees us in our affliction, but he's also the God who sees us through. He shows Hagar, he says, I see you, I see where you are, and I'm going to see you through this. I want you to go back, and I have a plan, and I'm going to work it out as you return. And so he reveals himself as El-Rohi, the God who sees you and sees you through. And now later on in Genesis chapter 21, if you'll flip over to Genesis chapter 21, you can follow along beginning in verse 8. He shows himself faithful as the God who sees her again in verse in, in chapter 21. So at this point, Isaac's been born. This is the child of promise. This is who God gave to, uh, to Sarah. He, he's renamed her Sarah at this point and renamed Ab, uh, Abram, Abraham at this point. And so Isaac's been born, okay? And so here's what happens. Look in verse 8. And the child grew, and that's Isaac, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now this could could have been like a mocking type laughter, who knows. But it really rubbed her the wrong way. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So Abraham's listening to his wife and she's saying, get rid of both of them. Get them out of here. I'm not going to have this other kid uh, share in the inheritance of my son. So get them out. And Abraham's upset because number one, he loves his wife. He's also probably fearful of her. She's a strong woman. And he also loves his son. He loves Ishmael. And look at verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So now she's been sent away into the into the wilderness. She's got a thing of water and she's got and she's got like bread and that's it and she's wandering in the wilderness with her child at this point. But it gets worse. Look at verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. So at this point, she's run out of water. She's in the wilderness. And she, she recognizes and she truly believes that at this point, my son is going to die out here. And I'm going to die with him. I just don't want to see it. I don't want to watch my son suffer and die. So I'm going to put him in these bushes and I'm going to walk way over here so I don't have to watch it. At this point, I can imagine that she's asking, where is El-Rohi? Where is the God who sees me? Where is the God who sees me through? Have you had these moments? Have you had these moments where you're in the wilderness, you're in the desert, and, and you're so convinced that all hope is gone? You're so convinced that you're you're at the point of despair that you literally go and you sit like Hagar in the desert and you wait to die. Have you had those moments? Where is El-Rohi? Where is the God who sees me? Where is he? Look in verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. That's Ishmael. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. God hears whose voice? The boy. The boy cries out to God. The boy says, "God, I'm in the wilderness here. Where are you? And what does God do? He shows Himself faithful again. He shows Himself as El rohi He shows Himself as the God who sees. If you are in the wilderness and you're like, God doesn't hear me. Yes, He does. God sees you. God sees your affliction, as He saw Hagar, as He saw Ishmael. He sees you. He sees you. He's the God who sees you, and He's the God who sees you through. We see in verse 18, he continued to encourage and he strengthened Hagar with his promise again. God has not changed. God never changes. God is still El-Rohi. God is still that God. So many times we're like Hagar and we give in to despair or we give in to worry in our lives. And what do we do? We end up sitting in the desert waiting to die. Remember we talked about we have a purpose as Christians, right? Do you remember what that purpose is? It's first Peter two nine. I'll remind you again but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and so what is our purpose our purpose is to enjoy god and out of that enjoyment that overflow of joy of god in our life that we show others that goodness of god we show others our joy that's it that's what our life is supposed to be about it's to enjoy god and to show show that enjoyment to others to introduce them to the source of our joy that's it that's why we live that's why we breathe and what sidelines us what keeps us from fulfilling our purpose i think what sidelines us is that when times get tough when worry creeps in we forget that god is el rohi and we and we despair and when we despair we we can't fulfill our purpose we become sidelined when disease happens in our life when disease strikes our family worry creeps in are they going to be okay what's going to happen with this what about the medical bills what about this what about that worry creeps in when we fight, when we face financial problems what creeps in worry creeps in when, when we face relationship problems what happens worry creeps in and when that worry creeps in what happens we give into despair and what do we do We sit, just like Hagar, we sit in the desert and we wait to die. And we aren't fulfilling our purpose. But I want to encourage you this morning, because as God has never changed, as God has revealed himself in the scripture as El-Rohi, he continues to be that. And I want to show you this morning, I want to show you a scripture where Jesus shows himself to us as El-Rohi, and where Jesus perfectly personifies this. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 10. And if, you, if you're if you using the, the Pew Bible, turn to page 767, page 767, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 7, beginning in verse 7, if you'll look there, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, But the sheep are the body of Christ. Um, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And those are false messiahs that came before Jesus. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now let's, let's break this down real quick. Jesus says, I am the door. This sounds very familiar. Jesus says in John 14, six, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father except through me. So what Jesus is saying, there's no pluralism here. All right. There's no, Hey, your way might work. Your way might make you right with God. Your way might make you right with God. Your way might get you to heaven. Your way no, 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 Jesus is saying, I am the way. All right, I am the door. I am the way that you become a part of the family of God. I am a way that you become a child of God. I am the way. There's no pluralism here. He's not just a good teacher, he's not a prophet. He's either Savior or he's an absolute lunatic because he's not calling you to an ideal, uh, to a system of ideals. He's calling you to himself. He's saying, I am the way. And then he says something interesting. He says, You'll be saved and you'll go in and out and find pasture. Now, what does this mean, in and out? Now, remember, he's been talking about us being sheep. And so this this phrasing in and out, um, it's very commonly used uh, uh, by Jews referring to flocks of sheep as meaning that wherever they go, they'll be protected and defended. They'll be protected and defended. So Jesus says that if you come into me, then you'll be saved and and you'll go in and out through me. And so what he's saying is that you'll be protected and defended by me. Does this sound like El-Rohi? Does this sound like the God who sees you? That no matter where you go, he sees you and he's with you. You can go in and out, but only by him. He sees you and he's with you. Romans 8, 38 through 39, for I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? El rohi. He sees you. Look at what else he says. He says, you'll go in and out. That means I'll be with you. I'll protect you. I'll defend you. And you'll find pasture. Which is what? That's common language meaning that the sheep will be provided for. They'll have what they need. He will provide for you. Psalm 23, he uses the same type of thinking as us as sheep. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He will provide for you. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about this again. And, and, and he talks about... Um, uh, isn 't life more than food? Why are you worrying about this? Do you not see that the ravens of the air they don 't worry about this stuff, but they 're taking care of or the flowers of the field they don 't worry about what they 're going to wear but they're they 're clothed more beautifully than than anyone of all time they 're clothed more beautifully than Solomon was clothed all right like like the richest dude in the world okay if 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 God takes care of them, how much more will he take care of you? Right? What is worrying going to do? Is it going to add an hour to your life? Is it going to add any time to your life whatsoever? No, not at all. And so what he's saying is that I see you and I'll see you through it. Don't worry. Why are you worrying? Why are you wasting your time on this? Why are you sitting in the desert waiting to die worrying? I will see you. I see you and I'm going to see you through it. Uh, A ministry statesman, Hudson Taylor, um, he had complete trust in God's faithfulness and provision. And he was thinking about uh, about China, and he was thinking about missionaries to China. And here's what he said. Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that his children wake up with a good appetite every morning. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect he will send three million missionaries to China. But if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And so God has revealed himself in Jesus as not only the God who sees us, but he's the God who will see us through. Now, keep reading. Keep reading that scripture. It says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When you hear that, the enemy comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. What do you think when you hear those words? I think of like chaos. Those words overwhelm me. Kill, steal, and destroy. Imagine that happening in your life. Kill, steal, and destroy. I imagine just an overwhelming chaos. And what I imagine is that overwhelming chaos leads us to what? It leads us to what Christ just warned us about, which is what? Worry. It leads us to worry. And that worry leads us to despair. And despair leads us to a life wasted. Worry leaves us spinning our wheels, just like Hagar in the desert, sitting there worrying. It leads us to spinning our wheels. Worry takes us out of living a true life and and, and puts us into survival mode, right? That's what worry does to us. Um, Worry turns living into survival And so what we need to do, what we need to do is we need to give God our worry. I heard a quote this week by Mary Crowley who said, every evening I turn worries over to God. He's going to be up all night anyway. Right? So turn our worry over to God. Why? Because he has something better than worry. He has something much, much better. Look at what it says here. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, which brings chaos, which brings worry. But what did Jesus come to do? He says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Life is purpose and meaning. Worry is a life killed, a life stolen, a life destroyed. It's a life wasted. Life is about purpose. Our culture is, is so distracted by worry and anxiety that they never truly lived. That they're constantly spinning their wheels. And they don't really have a purpose. They don't really have a meaning. They live for the dollar. They live for Stuff that's going to burn up anyway, that's not really living. That's worry, and that's a wasted life. But Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and life to the fullest. But they're sitting alone waiting to die like Hagar. And what Jesus is saying to us, if that's you, if you're spinning your wheels in worry, what he's saying is stop. That's a life wasted. I see you. I see right where you are. I see you. And you say, God, you don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know what's going on with my kids. I don't know what's going on. My marriage is a mess. Like, it's falling apart. I don't know what. And he's saying, I see that. I see you. God, I was up at the hospital all last night. I don't know if my father's going to make it. I don't know if I... I see you. I'm right there with you. And not only do I see you, but I'm going to see you through it. So stop worrying. I have something much better for you. I have something much better, and that's myself. And it doesn't matter. He's saying through all circumstances, whether you're in the desert or not, if you're in the desert, he's saying, I see you and I'll see you through it. You say, well, Grant, well, show me that in the scriptures. Okay, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Following Jesus means that God is always with you and he'll see you through the, uh, even in the desert and he'll never, ever waste you're suffering and you say how do you know that how can you be sure of that that god sees me and he'll see me through how do you know that how do you know you keep saying god is el rohi how do you know that i know that because of how jesus perfectly personifies it here in verse 11 look at verse 11 i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. How do we know that God is El-Rohi? How do we know That he sees us and he'll see us through. Here's what he says. He says, I am the good shepherd. Do you get that? I lay down my life for the sheep. So here's what Jesus says. You want proof? When you were helpless in your sin, when you were hopeless in your sin, I came, I saw you, and I found you, and I got you through it. I saved you. You say, you say, well, God, you, look, I'm dealing with some sickness in my family. I've got some financial trouble. I'll never be able to get out of. I got you out of sin and death. I got you out of hopelessness when you were as far away from me as possible, lost and dead in your sin. I came and I got you. I saw you. I saw you there and I saw you were helpless. I saw you were hopeless and I came and I got you. That's the proof that he's El-Rohi. And that's the proof that he'll always be. Is that when you were at your most helpless, when you were hopeless without him, he saw you in your sin and he came and he got you. What makes you think that anything else can keep him from you? What? What makes you think that? God is always El-Rohi. He's never changed. He'll always see you, and he'll always see you through it. And the evidence of that is that when you were most helpless, he came to you, he saw you, and he saved you. So maybe you are in this room, and maybe you're a Christian who you, um, you've been just racked with worry. Maybe despair has been like all you've been living in. And just like Hagar, you've been sitting in the desert waiting to die you've just, your, your life is no longer living, it's just survival. Maybe you today need to recognize and be confident that you serve God who is El-Rohi. You serve the God who sees you and he'll see you through it. If he saw you from death to life, what makes you think he won't see you through anything else? And maybe, Maybe you're not a believer, and maybe you're in this room, and, and, you, and you think, oh, well, okay, the God who sees me and sees me through, how do I know he sees, he sees me? You're in this room. It's not by accident that you're in this room. If you're not a follower of Jesus, he knows you. He sees you. He knows that you need him, and he brought you here this morning.